Hello and welcome to the Zwift SBS podcast. Zwift is the app that connects you to cyclists all over the world and makes indoor training fun. There are structured workouts, training plans that are really easy to follow, online group rides, and why not try a few races? You can also organize a meetup with a bunch of friends. You might just have to make your own coffee at the end. With Zwift, you can even listen to this podcast while you ride around the Champs-Élysées. All you need is a bike, trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Right on. Bonjour, 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 and uh, welcome to the Zwift SBS Cycling Podcast. Before we start, let me remind you that you can uh, download, stream, or subscribe to our podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash sport, or log a ride with our friends at Zwift. Joining me, it's Bridie O'Donnell today. How are you, Bridie? Oh, I'm very well. I'm disappointed for Schultz, but I'm excited. This was an amazing day. Yeah, absolutely. What a day. And let's let's pedal back of what happened today. Uh, there's a lot of things that have happened, including a protest, uh, but it would not be the Tour de France. It would not be France without it. But Nick Schultz, finish second of the stage of the Tour de France. Disappointed, but I guess the team can still be happy with his performance. They did everything right today. Uh, there was a break finally that got away of 25 riders and Schultz had a teammate. So he had a great companion there in uh, Jack Bauer, the Kiwi rider who rode so strong. So they did everything right, but also it was a difficult day because it wasn't the big mountains, but it was enough that it took a fair bit out of the legs. And when Betiol was away and they had that protest, it was kind of fascinating because the whole race had to get neutralized and all of the time gaps had to get held on to. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, of course, the they didn't start super well for bike exchange because uh, Luke Durbridge was uh, pulled out with, uh, with COVID and I guess that's something that we have to live with these days but uh, talk to us about what could this have done to the, the spirit in the team? Well in some ways I think I wonder if it motivated them even more. They would have been frustrated that Durbo wasn't able to take the start. We saw that great interview with Matt White, the team director talking about it, saying it was frustrating but what they would have had is a big plan for Schultz today anyway and so to have him and Bauer in the break they would have thought even more important to try and get that result today. But we know about uh, Nick Schultz as well. He didn't have a really conventional brought up in terms of the professional cycling. He ran through Spain and he came back to, to bike exchange. What do you know about him personally? Well, I do. Well, he's a Queenslander. I know that for sure. But one of the things we talk about a conventional path, it's more that he just took a path that was a little harder than we've seen for some of the other riders. He had to find some of his own smaller teams in Spain, in other parts of Europe. It wasn't all laid out for him easily. And that means that he's had to be a little bit more resilient and be a bit more adaptable, learn more languages, uh, have teammates from other languages. So now to finally be in bike exchange, but to have had that experience, it actually would have given him some real calm approach to the way he races and rides. And he's very mature for his age. It's really impressive. If, if we just focus on him a little bit, how far can he go? How, we, we know the team is putting a lot of expectation on him. Maybe, I'm not going to say too much, but there's early expectation on him. They think the future of bike exchange could actually be someone like Nick Schultz. And today we saw a glimpse of it. We absolutely did and there's nothing better than a bit of disappointment and a bike throw uh, and losing a stage by two centimetres to really galvanise your motivation for next time. So this will give him great reassurance that everything is on track. He did everything he could. He really was bested by a very, very good bike rider, someone with a lot of explosive speed. Magnus Scott Nielsen was coming around him a lot quicker. In terms of expectation, I actually don't think it's a bad thing that a team has an expectation. That means they support you, they build you up for that. It's just a balance then of making sure you get that right and 
and you don't get ahead of yourself or you're not so disappointed with a bad result that you throw it all away. So it'll, that will be the team, his coach, his manager and him to manage. Okay, we're focusing on, on, on Nick Schulz now because we are disappointed, of course, uh, but there's a winner on this stage and it's uh, Magnus Kurt-Nielsen. Do you think experience at winning won him the game today? Well, he certainly sat back uh, and he waited for others to pull most of those moves. He also had his teammate, Betiol, as the, the only rider who really managed to get any kind of advantage on the rest of the breakaway for that middle section of the race before it was neutralised. So he had a teammate uh, right until the end, which was really important. Also, we know how explosive he is at an uphill sprint. We saw it in those intermediate hill climbs over in Denmark when he secured the polka dot jersey. And then we saw it again in stages four, five and six as well. So he was physiologically really suited to this finale. Are you impressed with Magnus Kurt-Nielsen? I mean, we were last year and, and we know how strong of a rider he is, but uh, he impresses me even more this year because he's lost a Polkado jersey. He had it with so much pride uh, in Denmark, but today he's, he's performing again his second week. Yeah, he, oh, he's a really impressive rider. We saw Tom Southern, the team director in the car, the British rider, a former rider who a lot of Australians have worked with before. He rode with Drapak. Uh, he's a really calm and sensible guy. Also, we know Netflix is doing a documentary and EF is one of the teams in that documentary. So there's a lot of attention and that tends to help make people just ride that little bit better. Let's listen to uh, the, the real guy for us uh, today, Nick Schultz. Uh, it was a hard day, to be honest. Uh, I actually had really bad legs today after the rest day at the start. But uh, the boys have been helping me try and get in the move and, you know, I just had to bite the bullet and uh, try and get in there. I was almost worried once I got in there because I was like, oh no, I don't feel very good. So I really had to gamble and uh, thankfully I had Jack Bauer with me and he did an amazing, an amazing job all day uh, controlling the breakaway, pulling, keeping things together so I didn't have to do much and uh, try and find those good legs again. And then uh, it was just a matter of, the, of, of trying to do my best final climb. And, uh, you know, I tried to play poker. I've never really been in that position to contest a Tour de France stage win, you know. Um, and uh, it was almost perfect, but, you know, we know Magnus Court. He's won stages in, in, in so many Grand Tours, and he was just a better man. And Yeah, I'm really happy with second, but to be honest, I'm also really upset. Like, it's not every day you get to try and win a stage of the Tour de France, you know, so... I'll keep trying and see where we get to. So that was uh, Nick just uh, the real highlight, I guess, for us uh, today. Now, let's talk about Pogacar. Sprinting to the line to keep this yellow jersey by 11 seconds. Uh, was it really, really necessary, to be honest? Well, he's made it necessary, hasn't he? He announced it yesterday on the rest day. He wants to hold on to this jersey all the way to Paris. So he has 10 more stages in which to do that. There was that time that Kamner was holding on to the lead virtually in the race. And we saw his expectant face at the finish line, waiting to see what that time gap was. Uh, Many of us have said in the commentary booth, Simon Gerrans particularly said, he doesn't need to do this. Uh, if he was a little more mature or if he was a bit more relaxed, he could say, you know what, let another team have the yellow jersey, let them do the work. But he's already made his intentions really clear, so he needs to stick to that. I think it's starting to show fatigue, though, in his teammates. I think they're going to start to get more and more wearied. And we've already seen one, George Bennett, not take the start line today because of COVID. Mark Hirsch is at the back. Soler looked more fatigued than usual. So we'll see what happens in the coming days. If I'm just a devil's advocate here, him racing to the line to win the bump sprint. If he would have sat back, he would have lost what an extra three seconds, 
they will have won the heart of people in the peloton. He's not making friends today in the peloton. I don't think he's racing the Tour de France to make friends. I think he's doing it to have fun, to win the Tour de France for the team, for his contract, all of those things. Uh, you don't make friends um, in this way, but I also don't think... I think that he's racing like a, a competitive beast that he is. So I don't think we should be critical of his competitive nature. I, I think he is well-liked. I don't think he's a disliked rider. I think he's... Uh, manages to have really good conversations with people in the peloton so it's he's it's not that he's uh, aggravating others or, or making them frustrated he's just racing like the animal that he is so Vingegaard as well and the Jumbo uh, clique I should say uh, what did you think of them today Well, they did everything right, but it was interesting. We all knew Pogacar might go for time bonuses at the end, and it just showed Vingegaard was on the wheel of his teammate, uh, Wout Van Aert, obviously a very fast finisher, but even Pogacar was too fast for him, and there was a small distance, a few metres perhaps, between the back wheel of, of uh, Pogacar and Vingegaard. So even though he knew he was going to attack, he still couldn't quite get onto the wheel and neither could Roglic. So it just shows you the competitive nature there with Vingegaard. He knows he has to do everything he can. And every, it's still only a very close margin now compared to uh, 12 months ago when it was a five minute at disadvantage. If you were a betting person today, who would your heart be on winning that stage comes Paris? Oh, gee. You mean who, who would I want to win today's stage? Or who do I want to win in Paris? Win in Paris. Let's go all in. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think will win this race in Paris? Where is this going to play out? Tadej Pogacar will win the Tour de France if he doesn't get COVID. Okay, so only COVID can bring down Tadej Pogacar. That's interesting. Last question, because you know in France we'll have a good protest. Oh, yeah. uh, and then there's been another one that stopped the Tour de France. It's not unusual. It happens now and then. It's not unusual, but what we didn't see is any images of, of the why. I'm sure we'll find out later, but the race cameras did not go to the protest at all. All we saw were the riders on the side of the road waiting to see when they could start again. So we can only imagine it's a protest about government or about agriculture or about roads. or you know, It's actually eco-warriors. It was against climate change. Ah, interesting. Doesn't make it right but <laughs> no 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 but that's fascinating but but because we saw no images of posters or banners or placards we just have to wait to read about it in the newspaper or you can tell us because you'll have translated it for us yeah it was for the eco warriors and only uh, seven or eight people stopped the bike, a bike race yes, uh, today but it shows you um, how protests can be effective they, that the whole point is to be disruptive whether you agree with the idea of them or not it, in this case it worked people are talking about the cause uh, and, and stopped the biggest bike race in the world from proceeding for a, about 15 minutes so in, in their eyes it would have been effective thank you Brady for joining us in this first part of the uh, of the Zwift Cycling Podcast and now we have someone that we know very well from years ago at SBS it's the greatest of them all Phil Liggett how are you Phil? <laughs> Christophe it's lovely to see you again after the two year void this Tour de France is fantastic but what's more fantastic 50th edition for you yeah I know. you know what in the old days my first Tour de France was 1973 and I went home in, at the end of the 1974 tour and said to my wife Trish I said Trish you're never going to see me there you won't believe it there are people on that tour who've been there for 40 years and I've just done 50 unbelievable so you're getting yourself ready for, for the next step the next 50 well I appreciate the comments but I don't think I'll be around for the next 50 <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you make of this tour so far we got Pogacar dominating but maybe not so much because Vingegaard is actually not too far it's not finished but that dominance from, from, from Tadej Pogacar yeah I mean the guy is a phenomenon he's undoubtedly the best cyclist I've ever seen since the days of Eddie Merckx he's doing what Eddie used to do he's winning in the yellow jersey and not by the same time gaps that Eddie could win by but uh, this kid can do anything and the reason he's so difficult to beat is he loves racing his bike 
and he makes his team help him because he's just having a laugh. He's having a great time. He's not serious. He doesn't appear serious. He can absorb the stress. He doesn't show stress. If he's under pressure, he's got the ability to to alter the situation. So he's almost at the moment impossible to beat, I believe, and I think the riders are realising it. But it's good to see Jonas Vingago do what he's doing. Uh, he challenges him every day. Yes, he's getting pipped in the sprint when it's uphill, but at least he's the only one in the peloton that can go with him when he sprints up the mountain for the finish. So when we look at the, the, the GC, we've got a lot of Ineos as well. Of course, you're British, so uh, you know the culture behind that team more than, more than others. But how do, how do they attack the, the Pog? Uh, uh, can they even team up with, some, with, with Jumbo Visma to do this? Is this even feasible, thinkable? There's such rivalry here, you know, Jumbo Visma, although they're, they're not winning the tour, they're certainly winning more money than any other team. They're almost double the earnings of uh, Pogaccia's UAE team. Uh, so it shows you how good that team is, even though they've been knocked around a bit. Ineos have always been individuals. I can't see them making deals and teaming up. Uh, they're too independent and individual. Uh, Geraint Thomas is always a straight talker, always tells it as it is. And he admits that this guy, Pogaccia, is the best and it's going to be almost impossible to beat. But you know, the other day, and I certainly hope it doesn't happen, Pogaccia said he doesn't see COVID as a rival, but it is the one thing that could alter the face of this tour. We don't want it to happen. The loss of Luke, Bre Luke Derbridge after the rest day with COVID. Uh, how do you test negative on the rest day in the afternoon and test positive before the stage starts the next morning? Uh, he might be negative tomorrow, but he's off the tour. Um, he was an animator. It's unfortunate of a bike exchange. They've lost a rider. But 14 riders down as we leave on stage 10. Yeah, and then probably last question for you. When, what are you looking most forward for the next couple of weeks? You personally, not so much in the race, but you as Phil Liggett. And I know you have uh, Paul Sherwin somewhere in your heart always. He's, he's actually on your socks today. But you must be thinking about him as well now and then. Oh, Christophe, we miss him uh, mainly because he was just a great mate. We, we did 33 tours. Uh, Paul sadly died in December 2018 and we formed a foundation for him called the Paul Sherwin Project.com and yesterday I gave a talk for 90 minutes to uh, about 20 Americans and we had a great laugh because they knew Paul too in the old days and they gave me $5,000 for the project because the project is now in Uganda Paul's favorite area of Uganda was Karamoja remember he lived in Uganda and the Karamoja people loved him and they went to his funeral on bikes. And he's, we're in the process of building a matinee vocational school for girls to teach them because girls aren't treated too well in Uganda when they're young and they, know they get no good education. So we're teaching them the basics of life so they can sew and do things and cook. And we're almost there. So I unashamedly ask everybody who loved Paul's entertaining commentary, just donate to the Paul, paulsherwinproject.com because I'll tell you, we've, we're about $80,000 short of 200000 And it's all cycling people who've given us already $120,000. Yeah, that's just amazing. I know you're very busy. I'll let you go. You've got a commentary for our good friends, the, the Americans, NBC. It's always a pleasure to, to see you uh, in and around. And, and I wish you all the best for the next two weeks. I'm sure I'm, I'll see you around. After our two-year void with COVID, it's good to see you, Christoph. Thank you, Phil. Thank you very much. There you go, Phil uh, Liggett here in a, in a podcast. Maka, um, thank you for joining us uh, in the podcast. Uh, now, Phil Liggett, is someone you have a, a soft touch for? Uh, I absolutely do. I mean, known Phil a long time and actually one of the first 
um, commentating gigs I ever did. It was a post-production gig of the National Road Champs I did with Phil. And I was, I'd just retired. I was actually blown away that I was, you know, sitting next to the legend that is. And I can tell you, he was so good. He was so good to me. And I was making mistakes and errors and not minding my P's and Q's. And, and he just patted me on the shoulder each time and said, don't worry, mate. Don't worry. We'll just do it again. We'll just do it again. I think he got a bit fed up after about the 30th time. But <laughs> And without uh, ageism whatsoever, but are you, were you a bit surprised that you had to retire before Phil Liggett? <laughs> that is true, yes. Um, but no, look, what I didn't know, and you, and you guys told me at dinner the, the other night, I didn't realise he was here. We thought, because the COVID years, obviously, they did it from London and uh, the American NBC, who he now works for, uh, they were doing it from the States. And so it's a nice surprise that he's here. And... It is great that Phil gets to come back post-COVID. It's been a rough few years for Phil, and let's not forget the late, great Paul Sherman. Sherman, he's, he's right-hand man that passed away a few years ago too, so it's really good to catch up with him. Yeah, absolutely, and it's really good for you to uh, come to the end of this podcast to talk about the next stage. You've been busy all day. Yeah, look, I've got, I've got other priorities these days, mate, but look, I, I, I will find time. 10 minutes, clock starts now, go. There you go, and then we're not going to talk about Landry. Uh, let's talk about the stage tomorrow. Uh, it's it's a bonker stage. This is how we like them on uh, on the Tour de France, and then we're going through one of your favorite climb, one of your favorite place in the Tour de France, the Col du Galibier. It is spectacular, and when when you say that, the first thought that comes to me now is Cadell Evans, when he absolutely bossed that mountain. Andy Schleck was up the road through the valley. He had four minutes. The, the, the win, the Tour de France victory, was slipping away from Cadell. He went on the front solo with a bunch of good riders on his wheel. And one by one, he rode them off his wheel, reduced the margin, I think, down to a minute 50 or something. It is a monster. 2,700 metres. The stage is 151.7 kilometres. Starts off with the small Category 2. Then it goes to Col de Telegraph, another famous climb. It's always like that leading to Galibier or Alpeduez. Then Galibier, as we say, that is the high point of the day. And then it finishes on the Col du Granon, um, which is an 11-kilometre climb at 9.2%. Mountaintop finish. This is the first monster day of the tour in the mountains. Because we know there's the, the big one, the Alpe d'Huez, looming the next day. Uh, what do you think could happen on a, on a, on a stage like this? Because... You know, there's been a lot happening today. We saw anything can happen. It's a protest can happen. Uh, so, but on a bike race, uh, if you look at that map, look at that profile, uh, what do what do you see? Do you see UAE controlling on this one and the Pog attacking? They, they've they've got to be careful, don't they? They've got to be really careful. And I think, look, if the Pog's good, Pogacha he needs to attack because that margin over Vingago is not has not gone anywhere since he, since he opened it up. It hasn't gone anywhere. And as Matt Keenan pointed out to all of us uh, a couple of nights back, you know, same stage last year, he was five minutes up. Same stage now, he was 35 seconds up. So Pogacar needs to put some time between himself and Vingago, I think, just for some peace of mind and to keep his director sport ifs a little bit more relaxed. This race is far from over, and what we're going to see is a huge GC battle. Like every day, I'm telling you, give me names, give me names. Well, they're there, aren't they? It's the top 10, really, isn't it? It's the top 10 in the overall classification. So I think the real question is, will we see someone like Roglic try and go on the attack, you know, early, try and 
put some real pressure on. Remember UAE, they've lost George Bennett. That is a massive blow. Mark Hershey was struggling today. A couple of their riders were struggling. So they've, they've got to really manage their men and they've got to manage the team moving forward because this is the most important part of the race now. If we, if we talk about the Alps itself, uh, we, tomorrow we'll be pretty much halfway through the, the big climbs. There's a couple of other uh, several days, but you said this, this is the beginning of the, of, of the big ones. How important is it for the riders to be well prepared, well ready? Are, are they well ready for that? Are they pinpointed that stage particularly? Well, it's, 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 there's a bunch of different sort of scenarios, isn't there? The GC guys, yeah, they need to be, they know what's coming. They, they probably would have wrecked some of this. They've raced over these mountains before in the tour, so they'll know what to expect. Then you've got the, the opportunists looking for an elusive stage win. This will be a hard one for the opportunists to win, in my opinion. Um, saying that, though, UAE may let, if the combination is right, like today, they may let a break go because they don't want to be set. They don't want to sit on front all day and riding super hard tempo. And then you've got the guys that just want to survive that they are nervous about this and nervous about making the time cut, the sprinters. The sprinters, the riders that have been suffering, the riders that have maybe got an injury, an illness, have had a crash. So there's three different scenarios. Actually, quick question for you, because you were not here for the beginning of this podcast, but the, the stoppage that we had today, uh, you know, but I'm keen to understand from a, an ex-pro uh, point of view, having the race stopped for a reason like a protest, what does that make in for the riders how hard is it to start again after 15-20 minutes interruption without necessarily knowing what was going on well this is when we need to find the badger and ask him because that famous shot of him snotting one of the protesters and Phil Anderson in the background and I think we asked Phil in our, in our podcast years ago when we had Phil on um, yeah it can be hard for some some just uh, actually benefit from it because they might they might have been on their last legs they get some some glucose into them, they get some food into them, they're overheating, they drop a you know, cold bottle of water on their head, the soigneurs are there and we saw that unfold. For other riders, they were actually flying and they were on the advantage and then they had to stop, so then they lose that advantage. So there's, again, I think two different scenarios um, with, the, with those stoppages you know, that are unforeseen. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, it will be an amazing stage uh, tomorrow. Thank you for joining. Uh, the, thank you for making the time today, <laughs> Mr. McKenzie. Yeah, my pleasure, sir. Um, look, just go through my PA next time. But look, if you, I'll give you my direct line and we'll work something out. Yeah, thank you, Eurostar. Thank you. <laughs> this was the uh, Zwift SBS uh, Cycling Podcast. Before we go, let me remind you that you can uh, download, stream or subscribe to our podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash sport or log a ride with our friends at Zwift. Until next time, it's bye for now. Before we go, a quick word from our sponsor, Zwift. When it comes to sport, I always tell my kids, rule number one, have fun. On Zwift, fun is fast. Tour de France winner, Geraint Thomas uses it. So too does Mathieu van der Poel. And Australia's Neve Bradbury Zwifted her way to a World Tour contract. One of my favourite things on Zwift is seeing the flags of people from all around the globe that I get the chance to ride with. I love the structured workouts, doing meet-up rides with friends, and when I'm feeling strong, doing a few races. They definitely hurt, but they are fun. It's easy to get started. All you need is a bike, trainer, and the Zwift app. Visit Zwift.com, and hopefully I'll see you on there soon. Ride on.